0: My name is Mark Ventresca. I'm on the faculty here at the Said Business School. I'm also a fellow of Wolfson College and a fellow of the Institute for uh, Science, Innovation, and Society. The, we have an hour together, a little over an hour together, and I'm proposing that we use that to do a couple of things. I'd like to share with you some of the ideas and some of the work that my colleagues here at the school, in the strategy group, in entrepreneurship, in uh, international business, have been thinking about, and give you some insights into some of the debates and ideas and issues that we find interesting and compelling. The session is really titled Market Building Where Strategy Meets Innovation. I will probably not satisfy you on any of those terms, but I will try to satisfy you at least a little bit on some of them. The material that I'd like to think with you about today is is I think something that's compelling. It's one of the things that the business school here can do well and I think brings us into conversation with colleagues around the university. I, for example, work with colleagues in the the sciences departments. I work with colleagues in geography and environmental science. So part of the interest in our work is to really to take up issues of strategy that are often seen as within the specific purview of business, but to engage the kind of wider intellectual resources of Oxford as we do that. And I know many of you have had those experiences and so you understand the richness of that wider community. And something that I'm interested in doing is making those linkages. The work today I think is, briefly as you can see on the slide, I'm going to ask you to just briefly describe to you what I see as the ferment in strategy, why much of the current wisdom for understanding how firms should position themselves and how uh, firms should conduct their activities is running into difficulties. And I'm going to suggest very briefly the kinds of difficulties those are. Then I'm gonna begin to try to persuade you of a couple of things, that the jargon that's kind of common in strategy, that is how a firm finds competitive advantage, rests on a set of assumptions that are no longer viable in an increasingly global uh, economy, in an increasingly technologically driven economy, and in a world that is grappling with the reality of uh, supply chain debates, corporate responsibility, and ethics. So much of the tools that we have to understand strategy may no longer be helpful to us. And that's captured in this shift from competitive advantage, a a jargon term you may know, to the idea of value creation. I'm gonna show you a short video that was done here a few years ago that interviews a guy named uh, John Warnock, who was the founder of Adobe Adobe system. Some of you may use Adobe Acrobat or some of their or Photoshop some of the earlier Adobe activities. So it's a short video that Warnock kind of lays out a vision of how Adobe pioneered new kinds of products. And I think his comments will probably set the stage in a very powerful way for the kinds of issues I'd like to raise with you. I'm going to then uh, talk to you a little bit about the, the Apple iPod and give you or talk you through a set of issues there around the iPod that really help us think about why innovation is not typically local to a particular place, but involves an ecosystem and really involves linkages and connections, if you will, a social network that can be transformed and can actually harness disparate, distributed, disaggregated activities and forge them into a value-creating activity. I'm then gonna talk about a couple of different kinds of examples I think with the time we have and because we wanna have time for questions, we won't go through all of them. But there are a variety of cases, some of the work that I've done, some research I've done, some with other colleagues that looks uh, at Silicon Valley and some startups in Silicon Valley that looks at the way that market building is happening that's inclusive of women in Bangladesh. And finally, that looks at what I'm calling ecosystem services markets efforts in Amazon Peru to work with indigenous peoples and understand who those uh, asset holders are partnering with to create markets for water, air, and land in terms of the, uh, land r- in terms of the rights, property rights within Amazon Peru. The, what holds all those examples together, they're very different, right? Silicon Valley technology startups, women's participation in the market in uh, Bangladesh, and ecosystem services in in Peru. What holds them together is they are all what I'm gonna call institutionally complex contexts. So part of this session, you're gonna find out, is a bit of a critique of markets and how we think of markets. I think we have an impoverished notion of markets. I'm not an economist, so colleagues in the audience who are economists will probably wanna take me to task. I'm by training an economic sociologist and I'm actually interested in markets are actually social and political and cultural institutions, and that's the kind of underlying theme that we're going to go through and talk about. Uh, Okay, and then there's time for question and answers. So at some point, I can talk forever, as you can probably imagine, but I will discipline myself to stop at about five of three, wherever we are in the conversation, and give you about 20 minutes to have questions and answers. Okay. is that a question or I just, yeah. Okay, so basically, the, the, and again, some of this will be familiar, some of it may not be. I'm saying the fundamentals of strategy as, as we have practiced strategy, business strategy, analytically in the MBA program and in many corporate boardrooms around the world really turns on three core questions. So this is a kind of a primer, a reminder of the conventional wisdom. That wisdom really says the kind of basics of strategy analysis turn on three questions. How do we outperform rivals? In other words, how do we do something better than our current rivals, the other firms and the other actors that do what we do? So strategy in this case is not absolute, it's relative. right? It's how do we outperform rivals? That typically rests in understanding something about industry boundaries and it typically rests on assuming that those boundaries are knowable and stable. And you can anticipate already very few industries in today's or the contemporary economy have stable boundaries. So right away you begin to have an intuition of what's gonna be difficult about that as a core question. A second sort of core question in the strategy idiom is what are the sources of competitive advantage? Again, this is that jargon term. What that means is how do we understand the performance of firms? What, do, what creates that potentially outperforming rivalry performance? So. Competitive advantage can be lots of things, and that's part of the difficulty with that tradition. It can be lots of things, and it's not clear why it's any one of them. But that second question says, how do we, what are the bases of that performance? What are the sources of competitive advantage? And that's still a pretty interesting question. We get to now another and a tough question, the third one, which says, okay, we outperform arrivals, and we understand how we're doing that as a firm. Now, can we do that over time? So this idea of sustainable performance or sustainable advantage is certainly kind of linked to the broader kind of environmental issues around sustainability, but it has even a more basic idea which is simply whatever it is that we're doing, as conditions change around the firm, as the strategic context changes, can we keep doing what we're doing over time? And if you think about that for a minute, you'll think, well, that has to do with how we reposition ourselves with regard to new technologies or new competitors, and it also has to do with what's present within the firm, kind of capacities, assets, and leadership, right? So that third question has been a kind of a, an important one lately, but it's also run into some difficulties. The picture below here then, again, the spirit of sort of a quick summary or reminder uh, is a very quick summary of an idea people talk about as a value chain. And again, this will be familiar for some and not, not for all of a value chain simply says to analyze a firm to understand why it does what it does and how it does what it does, we want to think about what are the inputs, how do those inputs get transformed, and how do they yield some advantage. And typically we say, huh, for each of those links, for each of those components of the value chain, what kind of value gets created there? And then finally for the value chain as a whole, we're interested in what's distinctive about that particular configuration. So this is, this is my five minutes of con- conventional strategy for you. right? So uh, it basically, I'm asking you here to reflect on the, the, the kind of legacy wisdom was that firms are actors that position themselves in some n-dimensional space, some set of conditions. And different views of competitive advantage emphasized how firms position themselves vis-a-vis other firms and in different kinds of markets, and other arguments suggested that it wasn't how they positioned themselves, but in fact, it was the kinds of assets or talents in the firm that mattered. And both of those arguments have run into problems in part because industry boundaries don't seem to be uh, stable. And in a sense, that's why the cases that I'm gonna think through with you today really are what I would call extreme cases. I mentioned earlier, they're institutionally complex contexts. They are new firms in unstable technology arenas they are efforts to build markets where there are thin institutional arrangements like property rights and so forth and there are also the kinds of issues around ecosystem services they're occurring where there are many kinds of contending institutional arrangements so that that term that i'm asking you to kind of bear with me on institutionally complex contexts, for me captures much of the critique of conventional wisdom about mar- how markets work and what markets do Okay, so that's kind of prelude. The impact of this, so the impact of this ferment and that current kind of view of strategy is that a number of things are changing. As I suggested, the language, and I think language matters. I think words matter and I think rhetoric matters. The language is changing from competitive advantage to value creation. And you can see that's gonna open up for us some interesting issues about what firms do and who they do it with and how they organize their advantages. The why behind that I think comes from the set of kind of institutional and political and economic and cultural changes that I mentioned a minute ago. The term there, PESL, again, is another jargon word you remember, you may remember, it's an acronym that asks us to think about political, economic, environmental, legal, regulatory, and socio-cultural changes. So that view of PESL says there are contextual trends, new government regulations, technological innovation changing consumer taste. All of those things tend to redescribe the core strategic context. The what of this shift from competitive advantage to value creation I think is really uh, trying to understand how much time and effort and resources as a firm should we put into exploiting, to doing what we know how to do in existing markets with known technologies under familiar conditions. How much do we exploit current knowledge and capacity Relative to how much do we explore? And exploring of course is inherently risky, it's uh, innovative, it's experimental, it's hard to persuade your senior colleagues that exploring has value because today, the resources we invest in exploring may not look like they're yielding something whereas the trade-off we're not putting those resources into known familiar technologies seems much more appealing. part of the what here is how a firm manages that exploit-explore ratio. The how of this transition, the how of the shift from competitive advantage to value creation turns, I think, on really understanding roles and relationships. And that's gonna be a theme that I'm gonna ask you to really consider in the next uh, half hour, to really think about, in a sense, what you could think of as linkages. In more formal terms, you could think about that as social networks or relational strategies. But the idea here is, to understand where strategy meets innovation, the tagline of the talk today, I'm gonna to really ask you to begin to pay attention to these relational strategies. The argument being that firms that are gonna be able to succeed are not only gonna take positions, they're not only gonna have dedicated assets and resources, but those firms are gonna develop the ability to manage complex patterns of relationships, linkages, and connections. Okay, so that's the, that's the kind of core claim I'm going to now just, I'm going to show you, as I said, a video. This is a video of John Warnock, who was the founder and CEO until recently of Adobe, Acrobat, Adobe uh, Systems Inc. It's a video done here about five years ago. As you may know, uh, the business school hosts an event called Silicon Valley Comes to Oxford that brings a number of interesting people, both entrepreneurs and funders and other kind of public intellectuals from Silicon Valley to spend time with the MBA students here, to spend time with others in, the, in the, the business school community. And uh, John, Warnock visit, John Warnock visited us a few years ago and gave this talk at one of the plenary sessions. I'm going to take the risk of trying to show it to you. Who knows if the technology will work? But I'm going to try to do that because I think it will. it will remind you of someone who's been both extremely successful in one of these emerging industries, one of the technology industries. And he gives us a very kind of mundane but thoughtful understanding of how Adobe developed new products and what I'd like you to listen to in the video is how he talks about connections and linkages and how he talks about the sort of way that serendipity and improvisation shape both the development of new products and in fact their success so he's going to tell you about a couple of technologies PostScript which was an early product that made Adobe uh, successful that linked uh, printers and different kinds of software and word processing systems. He's gonna talk about Photoshop, which as you may know is an application that allows people to uh, use photographs and turn them into digital resources and and do a lot of interesting things with those photographs. And he's gonna talk about Adobe Acrobat, which is a a near ubiquitous uh, uh, tech standard really that Adobe sponsored that lets uh, documents be encoded full of different kinds of formatting and then move around the internet or in other contexts easily. So it's about, it's about a 12 minute video, but I think it will be useful for us to set the stage of this conversation. Okay. Well, I'm very pleased to
1: be here. Uh, I've always wanted to give this so I've got really hurry because it's been short. Uh, I found we founded, I co-founded Adobe with uh, Charles Dashofyde in 1982, and uh, I've been was CEO until about three years ago when I retired. Still on the chairman of the board. I have a paradox, and the topic today is uh, financing innovation. We have four products at Adobe that could never have been financed and would never have been financed by anyone in Silicon Valley. And I'm going to go through them and sort of explain the situation. When we got our original funding for Adobe, we wrote our business plan, we did a little marketing study and everything. And it was like a number of other business plans in that time, and so the venture capitalists, Hamburg and Quist in this case, gave us money. Uh, Five months into building this publishing system we were going to build, we decided to change the business plan radically. Because what we had built is we had built a technology that allowed you to describe any printed page in a very concise manner and then print that on a laser printer. And it was device independent. So no matter what the resolution of the laser printer, you could still print exactly the same page. Uh, There was no market for that. Had you done market research, to say, is there a market for a page description language, you would get back a resounding answer, no. Was there any way you could get into the existing infrastructure for publishing? And the resounding answer would have been no. What happened about five months in to our starting Adobe Systems, is we had two conversations. One was with Steve Jobs, and the other one was with Gordon Bell, who was head of R&D of Digital Equipment Corporation. Digital Equipment Corporation used to be a big computer company. Uh, and they had both broken their pick on the problem of driving laser printers, and this was becoming a very serious problem for Steve Jobs because the next year, in 1984, he was going to announce the Macintosh. And he couldn't, he couldn't print high quality pages off of the Macintosh because all he had was a dot matrix printer that would print a representation of the screen. In other words, 72 dot per inch dot matrix printout. And he knew ultimately that the Macintosh would not be successful if that's the only printer that he had. So he came over to Adobe and we showed him our technology and he fell in love with it. And he said, what you guys should do is you shouldn't to build these publishing systems, what you should do is you should license Well, first of all, he said, let me buy it. <laughs> and so we said, no, we don't want to do that. And then he said, well, let me license your technology, and we'll build a computer and put it inside of a printer, and then our Macintosh can drive that printer. And as we talked about that, the computer was going to be the largest computer Apple had ever built. It was going to cost more than any computer that Apple had. And so we started down and got a contract with Apple to build the Apple LaserWriter. And this uh, was going to be announced in 1985, uh, one year after the announcement of the Macintosh. Well, Apple had an off-site meeting uh, in December of 1984, just before the launch was coming up of the Apple LaserWriter. And all of their marketing folks got together and said, Steve, you are out of your mind. How can you sell a printer for $7,000 when the computer costs $2,500? He said, makes no sense. How can you sell a printer that has no margin in it? Because the cost of the printer was essentially because it had so much memory in it, was about $7,000. And he said, I don't care. He said, I believe in this printer. We're going to do. And besides, the cost of RAM is going to come down. And two weeks before the announcement of the Apple LaserWriter, the cost of RAM halved. And so it made the margins on the machine very interesting. And we announced sort of desktop publishing with the Apple LaserWriter. It was really interesting. The printing and publishing world was controlled from from a conference point of view by an organization called the Siebold Organization. And Jonathan Siebold ran that organization. And he knew everything about publishing. And I remember Steve and I hauled Jonathan in and we said, we want to put you under non-disclosure and show you what we're going to announce in January. And we, Chuck and I had been going to Seabolt conferences and talking about PostScript and what it was. And he was very polite and very uh, very helpful along the way. But when Jonathan Seabolt saw the laser writer, he said, "I." Cannot believe that I did not see this coming. He said, "I cannot believe that I didn't figure this out." He said, "This is absolutely going to revolutionize publishing as we know it." And as a matter of fact, over the next years, PostScript became a standard for publishing, not only for high-quality typesetting but all of sort of computer aspects of printing. And over the, the, I think by 1989 or so we had sort of sewed up all of the laser printer market for the high-end laser printer. Hewlett-Packard uh, had standardized on us, IBM had standardized on us, and all of the major manufacturers. In 1988, there were 70 clones coming after Postscript. But had you looked at Postscript as a business opportunity at the beginning, no one would have seen it. No one would have seen that the combination of a cheap Canon laser printer a graphical user interface from Macintosh, and a funky piece of software that glued this stuff together will completely change the printing and publishing world. So that's item number one. And I think it's very interesting for business schools to say, gee, how would you have predicted that product? How would you go out and analyze the world and predicted that product? Product number two, Adobe Illustrator. In 1986, when Adobe Illustrator was announced, no graphic artists on the planet use computers. So your market study would have been a little (laughs) funny, saying, well, who's your target market? And if you've gone out and asked every graphic artist in the world whether they wanted a computer to do their graphic arts, they would have said no, because they were successful graphic artists doing it the manual way. They made limits. At that time, there were 275,000 graphic artists in the United States. What they didn't understand is that Illustrator, well, I need to go back up and tell you a little story why Illustrator was turned into a product. My wife is a graphic artist. She used to have terrible times inking logos. Sitting down, black in the ink, making a logo to get the camera ready so you could turn it into a printed piece. So she used to get me to write Postscript programs to build the logos. And I said, well, really wouldn't it be better if I could figure out a program that would sort of build the Postscript programs automatically so that anybody, whether they had artistic talent or not, if they had the ideas, they could actually execute the drawing. And so that's where Illustrator came from. Now the cool thing is, Is that the market wasn't the existing graphic artists, it was all the people with ideas who wanted to be graphic artists but didn't have the talent, didn't have the manual coordination to be able to do the drawing. And so had you done marketing studies, you would have come, I would have never been able to sell that product to any DC. I would have never been able to sell Postscript to a venture capitalist. So here came Illustrator and after years, now there are about 6 million graphic artists in the United States because of all the web activity and their tool of choice is typically Adobe Illustrator. Third side, is Adobe Photoshop. Photoshop was written by two guys called the Millis Brothers. And they shopped Photoshop in 1989 to every venture capitalist in the valley. Got no bites. They shot started shopping into every Company in the valley and got no bytes. Here was a cute little program. Now what you have to remember was that a Macintosh at that time had 512 kilobytes of memory. Half a megabyte of memory. The largest hard drive you could buy was 20 megabytes. Hold a couple of images. And so writing a program to do image processing on a machine of that caliber it didn't compute. So what, is, what happened? So the Knoll brothers came in to see us. And I looked at this product. And I said, you know, I'm going to buy this product. Or I'm going to license this product from these guys. Not because I think it's going to make any money. But I know in my soul that there is going to be a market for photographic manipulation as the publishing industry changes and as the machines change. So we bought started Photoshop and in 1989 and 1990, I think it was, we announced Photoshop and it sold a few copies and then the machines would get incrementally faster and it sold a few more copies. When we bought the program, I said, well, if we sell 256 month, a month, that will be good. I think in the latest uh, statistics, we probably sell 60 or 70 thousand a month now of Photoshop. Photoshop has become the standard staple for web creation of web images. It has become the standard staple for every magazine and newspaper on the planet and every digital photographer. Uh, But it is a program that they could not give away to the venture capitalists. Because none of the venture capitalists had a market to identify. Fourth product,
0: Apple. Okay, I'm going to. Or I'm just going to start so we have a little more time to, to really digest what these ideas give us. Um, so let's bring the lights back up. OK, so I, I, I showed you this video. This, again, is something uh, that we use with our students here. Some of you will have seen this as students. I'm just going to today to ask you to think about this a couple of problems that John Warnock identifies really qu- clearly. One is, how do you build markets for things that don't exist? How do you understand how to imagine a market when nobody knows they need a product, right? It's one of the core problems in new industries. It's one of the core problems in emerging or nascent markets. And I think he's given us a couple of answers. I'm going I'm to let you digest the video on your own. And, and you'll see as I go on, I'm going to sort of weave in some of the Warnock insights. But I'd like to pose to you the same kinds of questions that Warnock posed. How do you imagine a market where nothing exists? What is a market? And the theme, if you think about the kinds of examples Warnock gave us, he said over and over again, this was about connecting. I was talking to, to uh, uh, Steve Jobs. I was talking to people at Aldous PageMaker. I went to the industry meetings. His account is a mix of both being a very smart guy, a PhD in computer science, but also being in the right place and being in communities of interaction and conversation. And that's one of the, the themes I'm going to ask you to think about, that markets really form from networks of interactions. This is the lesson from both Silicon Valley kinds of market formation, but also many of the other examples I'm going to ask you to think about today Bangladesh, ecosystem services. You know, analytically, we start with patterns of interaction, conversations, sort of more and less formally organized arenas of activity. Over time, markets may come to look like the markets that an economist would ask us to think about full information, efficient, and so forth but in the early moments, and that's why I'm asking you to look at the early moments, we see a very different picture. And that that asymmetry, that disequilibrium is something that's gonna become important as we go along. Okay, so we're gonna keep Warnock in mind, we're gonna keep Adobe in mind. Uh, Some of you know the story of Henry Ford, I'm not gonna rehearse the whole story, but Henry Ford, many people say he created the automobile, that's of course not true. He was the person who took an assembly of activities and moved them into mass production. So here, the kind of argument, again, I'm sure you know these quotes. There are two famous quotes, one of which people don't believe he actually said. The first famous quote from Henry Ford is, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black, right? <laughs> so that's the kind of story that said, he understood he could provide novel products, but he provided them in ways that were efficient for him and for the firm, right? And his, his accomplishment there was really creating an integrated mass production system. The second quote, and this is the one that's more contentious, that I think speaks very much to the Warnock story, he said at some point, he said, you know, if I were to ask my current customers what they want, they would say a faster horse. Now if you think about that, that captures the problems of building new markets, of innovating, of encouraging people to see the value of something that's not simply an incremental change, but actually is discontinuous. right? A car doesn't look like a faster horse. It has different features, it does different things, and it requires very different kinds of infrastructure. And that's a theme, again, I'm gonna ask you to begin to reflect on what are the kinds of infrastructures, what are the kinds of ecosystems that have to be put in place? So people like Jess, like Warnock, people like Ford and others, Edison I'm gonna talk to you about, I think they're system builders as well as being entrepreneurs. I'm also gonna ask you to reflect on that idea of system building and the work that goes into not simply incrementally improving an existing product or service and and creating value from that, but really this work of re-architecting large arenas of activity, what I'm gonna call system builders. Okay, so we've got uh, Warnock, we've got Ford, Uh, In that same spirit, Edison, some of you know, uh, involved early on an entrepreneur, an inventor, an innovator involved in turning electricity from an idea and a phenomenon to building large-scale electrical grid systems. And through his work and that of his lab and the extended networks of colleagues that he created, Edison in the US, as did other people in France and the UK and Germany and Russia, built a, a new invention, the idea of electricity, right? Uh, into a large commercial activity. One of my colleagues here, Fran Ashcroft, is a very well-regarded and renowned scientist who has done a lot of work on those early moments, how uh, electricity, went, electricity went from being an idea to being something people had to, you know they had to prove to people that electricity actually existed. So as you may know, there were, there were experiments in Carnegie Hall in London, there were experiments in uh, the US in, in, uh, in New York, Literally using various forms, g- ghoulish forms I won't describe, to persuade people that electricity can exist by showing that it can kill, in this case, animals, by using corpses uh, from the prisons to run electricity through those corpses and animate them, right? So, a lot of interesting experiments, turn of the, cent- turn of the tw- 19th century, to, and Fran Ashcroft is an expert in this, so you can talk to her about it. But the point is, Edison and other people I think are system builders and this is a, comes from an interesting book some of you may find interesting. An historian of technology named Thomas Hughes looked at these comparative cases, what happened in the UK, what happened in Russia, what happened in France, what happened in Germany, what happened in the US. How did the idea of electricity, the invention become an innovation? And his argument that these were not just entrepreneurs, they were system builders. They were people that, as he said, forged purpose from diversity and order from heterogeneous elements. Often that involved pushing aside or displacing or unbuilding existing uh, systems of value. Uh, And then the key focus for those system builders really, and this is literally the Warnock story that we just heard, the key focus is making sense of current conditions, building strategic linkages, envisioning possible ecosystems where they don't exist yet, uh, beginning to invent solutions for action to implement this new order. So again, this is the, I'm asking you to kind of begin to edge into this idea of how do markets get built? What does the work, what are the activities, the political and institutional and social and cultural activities that actually literally create markets where there have not been those kinds of infrastructures previously? Again, another visual here. This is a picture of Edison's laboratory in Menlo Park, New Jersey. Many people say, oh, that's, that's, he's a genius. That's where Edison built... Electric. That's where he had the ideas to understand and move electricity out. What I'm also counterpoising here is you can see, is Edison at the center of a set of relationships with existing industries, Gaslight, Telegraph, Railroad, with financial backers. Literally, they invented, they had to invent new ways of financing large-scale capital expenditures for that electricity industry. If some of you are following today the developments in clean tech and clean energy, alternative energy, one of the challenges, as you know, is to shift an ecosystem, if you will, of venture capital and other kinds of funding that has sort of grown up to fund high-tech Silicon Valley-like inventions, to shift those, to unravel those fundings and to invent new ways of funding large-scale capital expenditures that will support over time the development of alternative energy technologies. So, you know, as Shakespeare said a long time ago, the past is always prologue. You know, Edison did that work of finding new kinds of financing vehicles, creating partnerships with existing industries, pulling apart the gaslight industry and the infrastructure there to allow electricity to occur. And again, we're we're seeing the same things today and some of these also today adventurous, novel, still very fragile emerging, for example, emerging alternative energy technologies. Okay, so again, I'm asking you to kind of keep this tension. Lots of people say Edison was a genius, brilliant, amazing, and he was, but he was also someone situated in the midst of a large set of other relationships, and he was someone who was was able to mobilize those relations. Another person, you may have run across this guy, a guy named Schumpeter, an Austrian economist. I put him in here just to say briefly, he gives us a number of ideas, and his ideas really sit at the basis of a lot of what we teach as innovation economics. And the, the useful thing for us to think about here is a very simple idea. Schumpeter comes out of this tradition that said a lot of contemporary economics rests on the assumption of, that markets find an equilibrium. If you remember from college economics, supply and demand curves cross, and at that intersection where supply equals demand, that captures full information and that intersection yields price. It's a notion of sort of the, uh, the, the internal generation of price, price then as the description of full information, right? And that, that kind of equilibrium, that clearing where price, supply and demand cross is understood to be when a market clears, when it actually works and all the uh, presumed uh, features of efficiency and so forth obtain. Schumpeter and his colleagues, uh, von, Hi- uh, von, Hi- von Mises, Hayek and others, fundamentally disagree with that. And they said, in fact, markets are never in equilibrium, they're always in disequilibrium. And that is actually the core, they said, of how innovation happens and why entrepreneurial activity matters so much. Because markets never reach this equilibrium, because there's always an asymmetry, they said that kind of describes the work of innovators and entrepreneurs. And so uh, Schumpeter says in one quote, he says, perfect competition, that is the conventional view of perfect competition, is proposed as the way to maximize economic well-being. He says all firms in industry produce the same good, sold for the same price. And if you think about that for a minute, that describes a stable industry, describes the steel industry for 50 years, it describes national telephone monopoly industries for a long time, it describes the auto industry at times when there weren't international or foreign competitors coming in. But that notion of perfect competition being every, every firm is doing the same thing on the same terms, with more or less efficiency, profits then are substantial but they're incremental and they reflect sort of small incremental improvements captured in things if you know these contemporary ideas like Six Sigma and the interest in operations of squeezing out variance, right? Finding kind of consistent uh, common efficiencies. Schumpeter, though, and his colleagues posed a very different question. They said that's not the key question. The key question is not how does kind of capitalism administer the existing systems? They said the real question is how does capitalism spur or sponsor both the creation and the destruction of those systems? And so he gives us the ideas, you may know, of creative destruction. Useful idea for us. We've seen some of that in the last couple of years. You know, basically, he argues entrepreneurial action sort of spurs creative destruction, that is the unbuilding of the existing array of of technological assumptions, uh, technological standards, the existing order of things. He says entrepreneurial action spurs that that are embedded in old inventories, ideas, technologies, and skills. Incumbents and existing systems fail. And he says what's really interesting here, and this is again at the heart of a lot of innovation economics, he says what's really interesting here is not the incremental improvement and marginal profit of classical economics, he says really what counts is competition that comes from new commodities, new technologies, new sources of supply, new forms of organization. He says that is competition which strikes not at the margins of profits and the outputs of existing firms, but literally at their foundations. So this idea of creative destruction is core, he says, Every era has an incumbent way of doing things. That incumbent gets pushed aside by one or another mechanism. That creates a lot of destruction. At the level of humans and people and firms, that's job loss, bankruptcies, lots of bad things. But Schumpeter and his colleagues would say, actually, those are naturally the process of capitalism renewing itself. Why? Well, all of that destruction frees up resources, frees up capital. It frees up talent. So this is a very provocative point of view, but it reminds us that those those destructions, those loss of the incumbents, often provide the basis or generate new forms of activity. And that's what I think we're seeing in people like Adobe, right? They're they're remaking existing markets and reexisting technologies. Another way to think about this, this is a quote some of you probably have run into from the science fiction writer William Gibson. He says in one kind of compelling essay, he says the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And again, if you reflect on that for a minute, very interesting, that's a story that says information is dispersed around us, but information isn't commensurable, it's not in the same form, it doesn't look available, it's located in old forms of organization, right? So Gibson's vision, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed, reinforces this idea that says markets are fundamentally arenas of information flow and exchange. And markets are fundamentally places where, by connecting different components, by putting together different kinds of relationships, by understanding ways to connect or unconnect the parts of the whole, we can make that information and, in a sense, future become vivid and be realized. So if you remember the, the Warnock video, John Warnock talked a lot about things like saying, well, I just believed this was gonna happen, and sure enough, six months later, the price of RAM halved. Some people say, oh, he was, he's a genius. He's unbelievably prescient. I'm gonna ask you to say, actually, he's lived in a world where that kind of knowledge was commonplace. Not the day that the price of ha- RAM would have, but that within a month or six months or nine months it would have, right? That's about information that some people are able to connect with sooner or differently or in more efficient ways. And that's the kind of, it's a, that's an argument across economics, across sociology, across strategy. That says that's how markets are really kind of arenas of information that are differentially distributed. And in some interesting ways, innovation is about connecting in novel ways those existing arrangements. Okay, so this is kind of the, 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 the core of the argument I'm asking you to think about. I'm just gonna talk through very quickly the iPod and then go on to some other uh, cases and then wrap up. A lot of people know what the iPod is. It's a a product that Apple came out with and the debate is this. Is the iPod an invention? And some people say, oh, amazing, it's incredible. Never could do this before. It's beautiful and it's incredible. And the kind of counter size is it's not an invention. It's an assembly of a lot of familiar elements. I don't know if anyone remembers the Sony Walkman. right? Put on your headset and walk down the street with music playing. Uh, You may remember Napster. What was Napster? Well, it was a way to access music. It was a way to download music. There were the range of, let me say, questionably legitimate mechanisms by which people access music. So if you think about it, the iPod actually isn't an invention. It's an interesting recombination of pieces that are sitting around, of elements that are available. And of course, it's sheathed in a kind of typically beautiful, aesthetically, kind of elegant apple kind of packaging. But the argument goes like this, it's not an invention, it's actually an assembly. And the real interesting value of the iPod is not the artifact, it's not the technology, it's the set, de facto, it's the set of linkages, the connections to content providers, right? Walt Disney, Virgin, all the different record places. It's also the value creation story. It's also about working out, and this is of course what Apple did, as we all know in this room, Apple worked out relationships, legal relationships, financial relationships, commercial relationships, organizational relationships. So the wisdom, I'm gonna argue today, the wisdom of the iPod is not the technology per se, and it's not even the lovely covering, it's all the stuff that's de facto, it's the ecosystem, it's the worlds that are contained within the iPod, the connections that de facto linked us as consumers to various forms of entertainment, content, did that in nominally legal ways, and created and worked out the range of challenges that would prevent an individual making that happen on her or his own. And so then we begin to say, oh, the, the iPod then is actually a kind of an interesting value creation device that's linked many distant worlds, content providers, legal and, IP, and intellectual property issues, and has brought those into this apparently simple, accessible artifact. Right? And so again, the, the lesson there is not to mistake the artifact for the invention or the innovation, but to push yourself when you look at, when you read the newspaper, when you think about your own business, to really begin to say, what's the underlying ecosystem, what's the underlying set of connections and relations that had to be put together for this value to occur? And then that next level that I asking you to think about is, and who did the putting together? who was the system builder, what set of actors, what individual or what organization or what community. If you're, for example, if you're interested in some of the open innovation and open source activities, it's a community like Mozilla or uh, others of those agencies. Okay, so now I've, asked you, I've, I've sort of asked you to think about strategy and the conventional wisdom in strategy. How do we outperform our rivals? What allows us to do that? How do we do that over time? I've made a critique of that as no longer adequate to really help us understand what strategy and innovation look like in the contemporary period. And I've given you some examples that illustrate in a very familiar way that in some sense strategy is becoming innovation. That is the ability to innovate and to understand that innovation is not an insular internal activity, but is fundamentally linked to making links and to managing disparate sets of connections. I'm suggesting that is, that is strategy today and that firms are able to to, uh, build those competencies and to build markets with that understanding are more likely to be successful. Again, Warnock helped us understand that it was the ability to envision a market for Photoshop before it ever existed and to then put together the community, the ecosystem, if you will, that made Photoshop viable. Same with Adobe Acrobat. The iPod again is a very vivid example of of a of a firm in this case saying we can bundle together resources, competencies, content, new kind of invented solutions to questions of intellectual property, and to to funding. You know you can download from the web for a a dollar or ninety nine cents, whatever. I'm asking you to think about innovation as an activity, but also as an activity fundamentally connected to the what makes it possible for a firm to succeed. To succeed over time and to be able to continually uh, engage with a changing set of contexts. Okay, so the, the summary here, and this is a, the work of a colleague of ours here, of mine here at Cite, a guy named Rafael Ramirez, he and some others have for a long time really said the issue is value creation. And they say this really succinctly, they say today strategy is no longer a matter of positioning a fixed set of activities along a value chain. The right business, the right products in the right market segments, the right value adding activities. So in a sense, that's the critique that I made with you a few minutes ago, right? It's a critique that says that view of strategy as taking a position and defending it is probably not accurate anymore. It may not even be viable, right? And instead, firms and others interested in those firms have to begin to understand a new way to do strategy. And what I think many of us and many of us here at, at Oxford who are interested in these questions are suggesting is that is actually a value proposition about not doing the right thing but building relationships and roles and managing a complex and varied set of relationships like John Warnock at Adobe that position the firm or that position the industry in a way relative to critical dependencies around it. They go on to say then, successful companies reinvent value. Their focus of strategic analysis is not the company or even the industry, right? Those, those boundaries are no longer stable. We can't kind of concretely anymore say what is the travel industry or what is the entertainment industry or what is the music industry or in some cases even what is the steel industry, right? So even some of the commodity industries no longer have that kind of obviousness to what are the boundaries of that industry. They say it's no longer the firm or even the industry but it's the value creating system. Uh, in which heterogeneous actors, suppliers, business partners, allies, customers all work together to pro- co-, co produce value. That's a very frightening statement. I know all of you are sitting there thinking, what the heck does that mean? But it's a very frightening statement because it means you can't rely on a stable industry category system. You can't assume who are going to be the obvious competitors. The idea of a value creating system really puts the onus on all of us as strategists or as entrepreneurs or as regulators, you know, whatever role we have vis-a-vis the economy, it really asks us to imagine what is the value-creating system. And there's no right answer there, right? That's kind of the exciting part of this whole story. And in, in a minute I'll show you a little bit about some work we're doing in Peru that says the kind of system builders, the actors that take the lead in coalescing a particular value-creating system, it's not the only way to do it, it's not the right way to do it, but if they're able to forge a meaningful value-creating system, that can position a firm or other organization, a civil society agency, can position a firm in a very effective way. Right? And finally then, Rafael and his colleagues end up saying, because of all this, the key strategic task, what you know boards of directors and managing directors and CEOs need to worry about is really the kind of building and architecting of these roles and relationships and the reconfiguring of them. How are, What kind of partnerships are we going to build? What kind of alliances are we going to put in place? Who are we going to co-produce with? You know, in the pharmaceutical, a lot of this, as you may know, a lot of this insight came out of the pharmaceuticals industry and biotech in the 1980s, which was one of the first industries that sort of made it normal to have complex multiple alliances among academic, uh, commercial enterprises, among laboratories, you know, the the intellectual problem in, in biotech was that no one, firm or no one department or no one technical specialty could kind of mobilize the expertise to create value and so from from you know a bunch of interesting work was done on the biotech industry and its spin-off and its various variations that helped us kind of begin to realize ah this is really about kind of firms that have become system builders that understand who and how to partner and on what terms if you're following in the today the kind of language around open innovation uh, some of you may have followed the the uh, adventures of Procter and Gamble over the last ten years, a large global retailer, a producer of retail products. Uh, others may have followed IDEO, the industrial design consultancy. You know, lots of firms now are doing open innovation, which is a version of this, opening up what were internally based product development strategies, and really relying on kind of a network strategy to create a broader ecosystem from which they draw various kinds of benefit, value, and expertise. And as in any situation like that, it then becomes a negotiation where each of those partners in that ecosystem are also looking out for their own well-being and interests. And so you have you know, this last point, the key strategic task, what, what senior people in firms need to worry about is literally balancing and creating this portfolio of relationships. Okay, that's the, that's the kind of gist of the claim. I'm gonna give you, for about five more minutes, I'm gonna give you a couple of examples uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up and have some time for questions. Uh, this I will say, this is the follow-on to the, the Schumpeter slide a few minutes ago. This interest in innovation economies is about discontinuity. Again, a great quote from 1912, can't get better than 1912. Great quote from Schumpeter, he says, this is really, you know, entrepreneurs are people that seize. they recognize and sees discontinuous opportunities. And if you recall earlier today, I said incremental innovation linked to exploiting, doing well what we already know how to do, with products and markets and technologies that we understand, that's an incredibly important thing. It's how firms make a lot of money, right? And that kind of focus on continuity of innovation is important. These guys that were saying, what's interesting here, remember his his concern is not kind of incremental innovation or marginal profits, but how the economy literally destroys and creates new arenas and ecosystems of value creation. Um, And he says here, so, you know, discontinuous opportunities are really the important issues. Innovations then are new combinations of producers and means of production, as we said a few minutes ago. Uh, And then he says this is the gales of destruction, creative destruction. The focus then is on the destruction of incumbent systems, right, and the kind of literally freeing up of resources. And this is where I think a number of interesting arenas are. I mentioned briefly the case of uh, emerging alternative energy technologies. I'm a bit of a kind of dissenter in one way. A lot of people use the term greenfield. They use greenfield to describe arenas that are new and emerging. And for what it's worth, I'm gonna ask you to never use the word greenfield. I don't think there are greenfields. I don't think there's anything that fundamentally is novel. There's always a brownfield, there's always an incumbent. And I think the idea of greenfield, like the idea of entrepreneur, can really lead us analytically and in in terms of policy and practice in a wrong direction. But, but, and I'm happy to talk about that in the, the question and answer time. But the kind of point here is, many interesting things today, whether in healthcare, in alternative energy technologies, in some of the new security technologies, you know, we're in a place where new forms of activity without specific legacy uh, roots are being created. Here, many colleagues here in the sciences at Oxford uh, are doing work, as you know, may know, a lot of the early work on magnetic resonance imaging, a lot of the, the, the digital imaging systems that we take for granted in healthcare today came out of Oxford, Uh, those same labs are generating remarkably new and even more amazing kinds of inventions. And then as you know, I would say those inventions have to be threaded into these ecosystems of value creation. Okay, so the question I'm going to close with and I'll give you a couple of examples is what is a market at this point? The title today was Market Building Where Strategy Meets Innovation." I want you to think about for the next little while, what is a market, how do markets work? Particularly, what is a market from the point of view of an entrepreneur who's starting a new venture? You know, how do people act on the problem of market creation? A couple of the quotes here just remind you that very eminent economists, Nobel laureates basically say, we don't really define markets, we assume them. Much like core concepts in other fields in chemistry or biology, we assume some core concepts, we don't really define them, and so I'm here as I said, I'm an economic sociologist, I'm trained as a sociologist, I'm interested. I don't think markets happen. I think they get built. I think they're the outcome of political struggles. And so this question of what is a market, when and how does a market happen, I'm again going to ask you today to reflect on that as a problem of how do institutions get built, you know, what are the politics and the culture and, the, and the, the social work that goes into building markets in that way. Um, this is the third case I was going to talk about. It's a, it's a nice a, a piece by some colleagues at INSEAD and Stanford. They looked at five now well-known Silicon Valley firms, eBay, um, um, and some other large well-known Silicon Valley firms. They make an argument about how the entrepreneurs literally worked out the early moments of those firms, and they say what they did is they literally created claims, they demarcated the boundaries of the firm and the product, and they uh, controlled that through an array of tools. So you see, you know, the claiming the market was basically a cognitive activity using analogy. The demarcating was a set of alliances and various kinds of equity investments and other sorts of revenue sharing agreements. And the, the controlling, again, is kind of alliances, kind of buying up um, potential competitors and so forth. It's an it's a, it's a interesting argument. It says, basically, it says, these early cases of what are now very successful large technology firms started amidst very interesting local practices where entrepreneurs said, we're gonna take our product and we're gonna define a market around it. We're gonna take search and we're gonna define our firm as owning search. We're gonna take online auction marketplaces and we're gonna define our firm as doing online markets. So you see here, you know, one kind of, one answer to this question of what is a market In the case of these high tech firms, at least, and in the case of this sample is these are entrepreneurial initiatives that literally made the product and the market coterminous and created institutional arrangements to underscore that symmetry of product and market. They give us also this idea of nascent markets, and again, I'll just mention that. The idea here is a nascent market, since there isn't a well-structured arena of activity, we don't know who the competitors are, we don't know what the product is. Uh, The reason I like these kind of early high-technology industries is that they force us to confront all the raw ambiguity that is present in truly these early, early markets before we've settled who are competitors, who are partners, what's a product, who's a customer. You know, In these very early markets, those are not questions that come already prepackaged. And so what I think is important about this work is it reminds us to say in these very early moments, we see the jostling the negotiating, the ambiguity, reducing activities that successful entrepreneurs use to create a more stable, knowable, viable market. Again, remember John Warnock saying, we couldn't persuade venture capitalists to fund us because nobody believed there was a market for Postscript, for, uh, uh, f- uh, for an inking process that would create a routine kind of logo. Right? That's, that's a core question here in those early moments we literally don't have the imagination, and most of the incumbent institutions don't have the imagination to understand what could be possible. Okay, so again, a couple other examples, Um, I'm just gonna flip through these slides. Uh, San Francisco Science, some of you know Jerry Sanders, he's an entrepreneur, medical devices entrepreneur, who literally, again, created both a firm and an arena of activity from scratch, from very few resources. His story, just directly, is a network story, This is a very simple description, a kind of a network description of the medical devices industry as it existed. You see a kind of set of linkages among existing device companies, among inventors, among physicians who would be uh, relevant, both customers for new medical devices and also sources for that knowledge. And Sanders, as some of you know from knowing him or knowing the case, positioned his firm, San Francisco Science, in a central brokering role. He said, I'm gonna connect directly to each of those nodes, and I'm gonna use that location to help reduce ambiguity, to make my kind of value-providing activities more central, right? So this is kind of a network strategy. Uh, Another example, I'm I'm just gonna talk this through, um, is the role of intermediaries, I'm just gonna talk it through. This is an example that comes from some work we just had accepted at one of the management journals uh, with a colleague at Aiesi in Barcelona, trying to understand how it is that uh, we build inclusive markets, that is markets that include women in Bangladesh. So the issue is this, conventional notions of markets assume actors are independent, autonomous, have the ability to own property and so forth. In many emerging market economies, and in many of the uh, arenas where uh, the initiatives like if you know Grameen Bank or other of the social enterprise microfinance initiatives have been, those rules of the game aren't symmetric. They're not neutral with regard in this case to gender. So we're interested in how is it that women begin to have opportunities in the marketplace. Uh, And the work we did basically involved a lot of field work. I had colleagues who did a couple of years of field work in Bangladesh. And the problem, the analytic problem in the spirit of what we've been talking about today was yes, it's law on the books says everyone can own property, but custom, religious dictates, community political activity precludes women from having, the kind of, if you will, acting on those formal law, black letter law activities. And so this figure kind of says, okay, here's the problem. The story formally says everyone has access, property rights, autonomy, but there's this cluster of cultural, community, political, and religious logics that actually interfere with that. And the critique we're making is one that says that plurality of institutional arrangements all of those different institutions in a sense get in the way of creating markets that would be inclusive and again without going through a lot of the detail what we found is that a large organization called BRAC which is one of these um, kind of a development it's an indigenous development agency that does a lot of work at the village level in Bangladesh has done an enormous amount of work to both legitimate the role of women but also to create new opportunities for women to access those markets. And so this kind of picture summarizes the kind of standard argument in this kind of olive brown color says institutions are in place, markets are institutions, the institutions are in place like property rights, and that's the end of the story, right? The orangish colored uh, diagram, parts of the diagram say actually there are contending logics that mitigate the kind of formal institutions of the market and make it hard for at least parts of the population to participate, the purple parts of this then represent our findings. The role of BRAC as an intermediary that intervenes in very interesting microwaves on the ground to make it possible for women to begin to participate by, in a sense, uh, uh, helping to transform some of the political, religious, and cultural logics. Okay, Um, and the last case is the case of Amazon Peru. I've done some work there with a recent MBA alumna of the school who is Peruvian based there. And we've looked at how local indigenous groups are creating ecosystem services markets, literally how they are creating markets where there's no infrastructure for markets in terms of assets in Amazon Peru. Uh, This is a map that shows the locations in Madre de Dios, which is one of the areas in southeastern Peru Um, We're following 12 projects, and I'll just show you this real quickly. This is one of them, Belgica. It it reminds us the core are the indigenous people who have the assets. They partner with different kinds of development agencies and firms, and then they build a network of value-creating activity around those. So this is work in progress. We have 12 of these projects. We're tracking them over the next couple of years to
1: see how those arenas actually take shape.